Sport Calgary conducts research into sports issues in our city. Did you know that the gross municipal amateur sport product in Calgary is over $1.2 billion per year? Visit www.sportcalgary.ca to learn more. All right, kids, this is the first time that I'm going to recommend wearing a helmet while listening to this podcast. Buckle up, grab yourself something to eat, grab yourself something to drink. You and I are going to hunker down because we're going to spend some time with a friend of mine. Oh, forgot to tell you, uh, I got full disclosure, a really good friend of mine. Uh, I have known him for almost two decades now. I've covered him since he was originally drafted into the Canadian Football League. Um, he is known to me and others as Johnny Free Crap. Uh, that's the PG version. You can imagine what really that name is. We will get into the Johnny Free Crap uh, name. More importantly than he is right now a real-life hero on the front lines uh, as a Calgary uh, City Fire Department member. He is a firefighter for the City of Calgary after a distinguished um, CFL career that involved winning three Grey Cups. Also an NFL uh Journeyman, I guess is the best way to describe it. Four teams played in the World League, although I don't think we talk about the World League in this conversation. But Randy Chevrolet is a really special guy. Uh, maybe more important than all of that, he is an advocate, a voice, and, and a person on the ground working on bully prevention. He works with a group called Dare to Care. Uh, they do incredible work in our schools to help stamp out bullying. Um, we're going to talk to him about that. But, boy, are we going to talk football. Are we going to tell you some football stories, some really, really, really good football stories, and a couple of really good football stories that I'm not sure have ever hit the airwaves in Calgary. That's a problem with him. He's become a little bit of a commodity these days, he's, and I'm going to give him a hard time about that, too, because uh, he's, he's doing all kinds of radio interviews just before he did our interview. But I'm pretty sure we got some new cool stuff. But this one's a long one, folks. You might have to break it up, but whatever you need to do, well worth the listen. Stay right till the end. Um, sport Calgary is a volunteer-based nonprofit society guided by a deep love of sport and a mission to help sport grow here in our city. Ladies and gentlemen, three-time Grey Cup champion, Dare to Care ambassador, and current member of the City of Calgary Fire Department, here's Randy Chevrier. Longtime friends with a, a, an Edmonton radio station. That's how this we're going to start this conversation. Is all of a sudden like an old here. friend, huh? Old friend, old friend. Old all of friend. a sudden, you're everybody's friend. Did you notice that? Like, hey, we need you now. There's no sports on. Randy, where are you? Yeah, you know, someone asked me. He said, "Oh, you're getting like you're doing a couple of interviews this week." I said, "Yeah, the sports world must be dry if they're knocking on my door to get stories." Yeah, I know where we should go. Randy yeah. has stories, right? Yeah. Randy could talk. Just turn the mic on him, and he'll just talk for two hours. Absolutely. Um, you are a three-time uh, Grey Cup champion. Yeah. Um, you are a uh, one of the longest-serving members, I think, of the of the, the red and white. Although you didn't finish here, all of these things, but they pale in comparison to the work you're doing now. Tell us a little bit about being a firefighter in the age of COVID nineteen. Well, it's uh, it's pretty interesting, and I, I mean, there's not much I can say except that it's really evolving almost on a day-to-day basis. We're reevaluating our procedures, reevaluating how we do things. Um, you know, uh, as um, I guess uh, uh, the health experts are getting more and more information on this virus, it trickles down to us, and it affects everything we do. So uh, there, there's definitely you know, a little bit of tension 
uh, on the job right now because, you know, you come off of four days off and you don't know what has changed. And, uh, you know, whether how we respond to medical calls, uh, how we're going to interact with the public, uh, just so many things in our day-to-day routine as firefighters, um, you know, put us in contact with people and with each other. I mean, we're, you know, we're, fire department is predicated on guys, you know, doing everything together. We, you know, we're, we're cooking together. We're doing all this stuff together. And like I said, day by day, not just procedures on how we deal with uh, the public is changing, but, but procedures within our own hall that we have to adjust to. So it's, uh, you know, we're, we're like everyone else. We're, we're trying to do the best job we can with the information we have. And uh, as it changes, we change. So uh, there's definitely a little bit of tension because, you know, you think, well, what we did yesterday was we thought was good yesterday. Today it might not be good and we might have to change it. So so there's a little bit of that. This is new to everyone, right? It's it's yeah. uh, it's unprecedented in the world, uh, not just in in uh, uh, the first response world. But obviously in the first response world, uh, you know, we're an essential service. Uh, there's a finite amount of firefighters, uh, police, paramedics, uh, you know, and, and so when those services are needed, if we are down members, it affects the public. You know, if you have a, let's say a fire hall, for instance, if that, if it were to happen that, you know, a whole fire hall would get infected. Well, that's a whole crew that can't do their job and serve the public because fires still happen. Car accidents still happen. Uh, you know, things happen in this COVID world and we have to be able to, uh, to uh, keep dealing with that situation while continuing to do the, the, the regular or provide the, the regular everyday services we provide. So it, it, it has been quite challenging. Uh, you know, for instance, I mentioned before, I don't know if it was before you start rolling, but, uh, you know, we had an outdoor workout today. Uh, you know, and every Faraha has a gym. Every Faraha has, uh, you know, and right now with the procedures, um, have they been adjusted? We're not allowed to use those. We're following the same protocols that everyone uh, in the province is using. So uh, we're not the lucky ones that uh, have a gym and get to use it. We have it taped off and we have to find alternate measures to work out. So we all went outside and we did a, a body weight workout. And then me and a couple of guys went into our uh, training room where we have uh, television stuff and we did uh, some yoga. Um, so, you know, you, you have to adapt. Uh, you have to adapt. We still have to be in shape. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not an excuse to just put our feet up and say, well, you know what, we, we don't have to be ready uh, because, you know what, it, it, working out is our health as well. It's not just keeping everything clean and keeping away from each other, but, you know, part of our job is very physical and you have to put yourself through that stress, just like in, in, in football, right? Yeah. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting times for sure. What's the world like around you now, Randy? And, and I, again, you said it, fires still happen, the, th- the accidents, the things, the emergencies that you respond to still happen, but there seems to be a just dramatic drop in volume out there right now. What's what's it like to do your job? The rhythm must be different, right? You know what? It's different. In the past, it, it seemed like, um, <clears throat> it seemed like, you know, you hang around, you're a bunch of guys, you hang out at the hall and and, uh, you know, when the call comes, you go, yeah, hoorah. Uh, now it's a little more tense. I mean, we're still ready for the call. We're still waiting for the call, but it's, it's tense. There's, there's, there's tension, right? We, you know, you, 
uh, go to a call and, and it could be for a fire. It could be for a flood in someone's house. Well, next thing you know, it's, you don't know whose house you're going to. You don't know if you, and again, it all comes back to that. Well, how bad is this virus? Yeah. How bad are we going to get if we wind up in a, in a house, uh, there's a fire where there was people that were sick. So, you know, it's not totally top of mind, but it's tense. I mean, you turn on the TV, that's all they're talking about. You turn on, you, you open your email, you know, you get your emails from the city and the chief and everyone to update you. That's, that's all you're getting. And so, it, you know, it's, it's definitely heightened when we're not just sitting at home in our homes kind of, you know, I, I, I think uh, the shelter in place protocol that they're suggesting for everyone is fantastic because you know what? The safest place should be your own home. Keep it clean. Make sure it's stocked up, ride it out, and hopefully this thing goes away. But for people that have to kind of step out and 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 then you know step into other people's homes, and not to say that there's no trust, but you know we don't know how far reaching it is. The numbers are numbers that are being reported. Not you know if, if someone's not feeling ill or not feeling so a little bit of unease, but yeah. you know day to day, you know I still had to put out a fire last week, and uh, there was still a car accident I went to last week. There was still. Uh, a flood I went to last week. There were some medical calls, uh, that, you know. So, so it's it's just different. Uh, but it's still, you know, we're providing top-notch service to the best of our abilities, and uh, we just have to be even more cautious. That, that's that's all it is, you know. In, in the past, we, you know, you can't just rush in because you know, right, or, you know, they always say fools rush in. Well, now even on on a minor, what would be considered a minor call. Uh, you can't rush it. You got to you got to make sure you're wearing the proper gear. Uh, you can't. Yeah, it's 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 for everyone's safety, right? Yeah. Do you feel the the public um, appreciation that is being shown? Uh, the the you know the the clap the applause at seven o'clock. The we've seen pictures of people coming up to firehouses with signs and stuff like that. Do you do you feel that appreciation from the public right now? Yeah, it's definitely felt and 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 it's appreciated. And, and you know, uh, almost feel like we're getting too much credit sometimes. I would have to say, you know, for us looking within, I mean, it's the ambulance workers, the EMS that are taking the brunt of those calls. It's the people at the hospitals. In uh, a lot of those calls now. Uh, you know, we're we're still doing the job, right? Like we still have to go to work. There's there's a there's that, um, I guess, uh, reality for us. You know, I wake up at 5 a.m. to go to my shift, and you know, whatever happens, I'm going to go. So so we appreciate it. But I mean, if if I'm going to tip my hat to anyone, it's all the 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 um, EMS staff, all like the emergency medical service staff. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all the nurses, all the doctors, everyone working in the hospitals. It's, uh, you know, I, I'm really uh, impressed by the, the leadership and communication of Dr. Hinshaw, who every day provides a really uh, robust report uh, for people. And, and, you know, you can sense that there's uh, a level of sternness, but a level of calmness in her voice. And, uh, you know, that's kind of pretty much the only expert I listen to. I'm not listening to the prime minister right now. Uh, I'm not listening to premiers. It's not to say that they're not doing their job, but really, I'm just trying to see day to day what this uh, this medical crisis um, is is looking like and what's needed to combat it. And I find that she's giving some really excellent information out there, and that's kind of my daily dose. Because anything more, it starts getting to be a little bit too much, even for me. Like I I got to turn I got to turn it off too because it's stressful. Yeah, it's it's really stressful being at work knowing that, you know what, I got to come home to my kids. 
praying that, you know, I go to do a job to help someone. You know, last week we were at some, someone's place and there was a fire and we were doing our job and we we're cleaning up a flood in someone's house. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going on in there. And in the past, you don't care. You just do the job that's there. But now there's this heightened sense of, okay, well, now I got to come back and I got to scrub my whole everything down because who knows, right? Yeah. It, it, it's funny. We, You and I have done this for over a decade, different conversations in sport, but we've always had that underlying narrative about uh, leadership in sport mm-hmm. and even about how sport finds its way into the real world. This might be the most real equivalent or occasion to compare sport and real life in an emergency when it comes to that one aspect of leadership. I think we've seen some incredible leadership. Hinshaw is one person I would point to, concise, on message, you know, yeah. you can trust. We had those conversations about football coaches, about other coaches. Yeah. Um, we really are, and I, again, not to, to get into politics too much, but there are certainly examples of lack of leadership, but there have been some pretty stellar um, examples of leadership too. Oh, for sure. And I mean, in this crisis, if you look just internationally, what's going on, um, you know, <clears throat> I would say that um, with with uh, the gravity of this crisis, it seems like our leaders, our prime minister, our premiers, our mayor, and all our health officials are um, paying the proper respect to our opponents. Let's just say, yeah. and they're communicating. Yeah, and I think the number one role of leadership is communication, communication down to the masses in sport, it's to your athletes and your assistant coaches. Well, in in this world we live in, the communication has to come down to the everyday person. And I think it's it's uh, in Canada, it seems like we're doing a great job. Now, do we have enough resources? Do we have enough time? Do we have enough um, uh, ability to to stem the tide? I don't know. And just because you have great leadership doesn't mean you always win the game. Mm-hmm. But what I'm sensing is that at least we're prepared, and we're we, our leadership is giving us a fighting chance. Just go, you know, a few hours south, and it's a total different story. You know, in you know they were it, it seemed like. You know, they're denying the severity of it. Uh, it, it, it it's still not a unified front across uh, across across the um, across the United States. You have some senators uh, and governors urging people to get back out and spend money and go go to businesses. And then you have the pri- their pr- president um, that's uh, that's, you know, he's he's you know, he talks out of two sides of his mouth saying that, you know, uh, it's serious. He, you know, there's a lot, you know, it's just Trump's way of doing things, right? Calling it, uh, you know, the Chinese virus and, and just his, his politics are so divisive. His leadership style is so divisive. He doesn't have anyone unified. And I'll, and I'll say one thing. I mean, listen, I grew up in Montreal and grew up in, uh, in, in, in the time of uh, uh, referendum. Sure. The time of, yep. And I would say <laughs> as crazy as this sounds, at the moment, and this is a reflection I had the other day, this might be one of the single most unifying um, events in Canadian history. Because you look at Quebec, uh, who, I mean, we're not talking about oil and gas. We're not talking about English. We're not talking about French. But you could look at Quebec and their response to the COVID-19 uh, um, uh, virus. 
and it was quick, concise, and it was right. And you look across the border, and we all on that same front. And I don't think I've ever seen uh, a, a Canada with, you know, 10 provinces, three territories, and every one of those provinces and territories on the same united front delivering the same message to all of its people, regardless of the language they speak, regardless of what country they come from, regardless of what faith. Like, this is probably, in my opinion, the single most unifying um, event in Canadian history. Obviously, it's world history, but what it's doing to Canada, um, it, it, as, as terrible as it is, it's pretty special to watch. You're wondering to yourself, geez, Rob, how are you going to pivot into football from this? Yeah. I'll give you a classic example of leadership. Yesterday, my phone rang. I picked it up. Tom Higgins. Hmm. Tom called. How you doing? Just wanted to check in. You need anything? How you holding up? Um, Tom was always one of my favorite interviews. Tom just every once in a while pops into my life just to say hello, just to make yep. sure I'm good. Always pause. Like, it's never... It's always positive. Like you always feel better once you've talked really? to Tom Higgins. And yeah. I know you work with Tom and Tom coached you. And yeah. it's hard not to think in a moment like this that, of course, Tom Higgins calls me to see how I am. That's just who he is. Yeah. No, he's, uh, you know, it, I read this book. I don't read a lot of books, Rob. But I read this one book on leadership styles. And they always say, it was. I think it was a study on CEOs. I don't even know what the book was. But I just remember the line saying that most – uh, CEOs and managers pattern themselves off of their first most influential CEO and manager. And you could go, you could work for a hundred different CEOs and managers after that first or second most influential one. But it's, it's the one that you meet early on in your career that you're going to pattern yourself after. And, uh, I, I really feel fortunate, uh, that I was coached by by Tom Higgins. Uh, you know, no slight on any of the other coaches, uh, especially in the CFL. I was only coached by three people. Yeah. Uh, Coach Higgins, Coach Hoffnagel, and Coach Jones. And all three uh, leaders in their own right. But for me, the leadership style that I gravitated to, that, that my personality gravitated to, was Tom Higgins. And it, it was for those things you said. You know, he's the type of guy uh, that, that would do those things. His leadership style, again, what I gravitate to is not abrasive. Uh, you know, football. If we if we look at the world of football, <laughs> it, it's uh, it, you know, it, it, maybe it's changed in the last number of years. Uh, maybe sport landscape between relationship between coaches players has changed in all sports, but especially football, where it was this um, hyper masculine world right uh, uh, where there there really wasn't a female equivalent of the sport uh there you know it, it, hyper masculine world with the raw raw you know king of the jungle uh destroy everyone mentality you know wh however you want to attribute it all these these sort of carnal and primal uh human nature type elements of violence and aggression and football was is kind of like a was always seen as accumulation of all those things. And and, you, and, and and the thought process was in order to get the best out of men, you had to kind of go down to that level and, and really, you know, get them to the point where it's anger, it's aggression, it's, it's violence that's being exerted on a football field and, and it's control because football is a very structured sport. 
lot of control. It's not like a free flow, like a sport like hockey or basketball, where you just drop the puck and then go. Right. Uh, you know, football set plays happen every play. You know, every seven seconds you start a set play. You know, in basketball and hockey, how many times do you get a set play from a faceoff, and then everything goes crazy? Um, so there's a lot of control, and and um, and within that structure of control, you know, through the coaches that I've seen in the NFL, uh, and and then the coaches I've worked with, Tom sort of rises above that, having to dip into the to the to the negative sauce to motivate his guys. Uh, does it work for everyone? No. Uh, it worked for me, and it worked in, for enough guys that in 2002 we went to a Grey Cup. In 2003 uh, we won a Grey Cup. Uh, so, so to say that his style isn't successful is, is a total lie. And I would say that Tom Higgins has has quite a remarkable uh, coaching record. Uh, when you don't just look at the numbers, when you look at the story behind it, when you look at a uh, a Stampeder team that uh, won. Uh, four games the year before he took over as head coach and GM, they come back and win 11 games the year after, you know, when he went to Montreal uh, and he won, you know, he took a losing team. He started and then he, he built, you know, got into the playoffs and, and the thing he's done and the teams he's coached and how he's done things. He's always maintained that level of positivity. He's never once dipped down. He's, and, um, and I respect that. Uh, I like that. It, you know, it's not only how I would coach. Uh, I wish it would be how I would parent, uh, you know, uh, yeah. unfortunately, uh, you know, children sometimes get the best of us. I've got three boys and I tell you what, sometimes I'm not in the, in the, in the nice uh, sauce with my kids, but it's just the function of being a parent and, and caring so much, but how I would like to model myself as a coach. And, and I believe that I, I try that. And as a parent and as a, as a teammate is sort of how, how, how that person uh, modeled for me that, uh, you can be stern, you can be tough, but you can also show respect for the people, so to speak, under you. When you think about football, there's a, lot, oh, there's a huge hierarchy, right? Like everyone works together, everyone's part of the team. Right. But, you know, make no mistake, quarterback's the quarterback, and then you know everyone else kind of falls into place. It's like uh, Herm Edwards told me once when he walked in the room uh, when I was playing for the Jets, and he said, Ben, he's like, I'll treat you all fairly, but I won't treat you equal." And I always respected those words, but there are some people that won't treat you fairly and they won't treat you equal. Yeah. And that exists in the world of professional sports that exists in the world of amateur sports. So when there's a guy like Tom Higgins comes around that he treats you, maybe he doesn't treat everyone equally, but he does a pretty good job of treating people equally, but he treats everyone fairly. Uh, you know, I, I respect that tremendously. tremendously. I, I want to get him on the podcast. I, I said it, I said that I invited him, and we will get him on the podcast. But it, it's to me, it was just it is who he is. And look, uh, you know, I think Michael Clemens is that guy. I think I, I think there's elements of Dave Dickinson are definitely that guy. Dave Dave has said that exact Herm Edwards quote to me on a couple of occasions. I don't, you know, I'll treat everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, as football players, but it's not going to be equal. That's, yeah, that, that's I, I football. Dave's like that. I got to see, I, I was Dave's team. I was, I was an sure. opponent of Dave's. <laughs> I was a teammate of his. He was um, a position coach while I was with the Stamps. He was a coordinator while I was with the Stamps. Never got to play for him as a head coach, but every step of the way, he's been that guy. Yeah. He tre- and he's, he's a fiery competitor. Sure. Like, you, you, you could be a fiery competitor and really want to win 
and really want the best out of your guys, but still treat your guys well. And and I and I, I would venture to guess he's the same as a head coach for sure. Uh, you know, I, Dick LeBeau was uh, you know he's a Hall of Fame coach and a Hall of Fame player in the NFL. He was my coach in Cincinnati. He was the same type of person, cut from the same mold. Uh, I remember Rod Rust, uh, former uh, Alouettes coach and I believe Buffalo Bills coach. Uh, he was cut from that cloth. Uh, so so it's not unprecedented. Tom Higgins is not the only one, but sure seems few and far between in the dog eat dog world of sports. Where right. you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of times you not you don't just have to work hard to get to where you get. You have to know the right people. You have to play the game. And uh, the pro sports world is a, is a tough business to last in, uh, you know, at the best of times. You've, uh, you've name-dropped some coaches, but, you know, there's so many different directions I could go on your football career. And I know you, you're very open in sharing them. But let's talk about Johnny Freecrap because sure. um, that is my favorite. That's the, the, you were very open about that when I first met you. You didn't come to the CFL right away. And you created this persona, Johnny Free Crap. It's not crap, by the way, but, you know, for the sake of a Sport Cavalry po- podcast, we'll call that. Tell us a little bit about your football journey before you finally came to the Eskimos. Well, I mean, I didn't create the persona. It just became who I was, and it became sort of a, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a, if it's a lifestyle. I mean, I, I, I sure don't, uh, don't take advantage of it right now. But I'll tell you that example. And then I'll, I'll, I'll see like a, like a, a present example to see kind of how it all connects. Okay. Basically, uh, so I was a rookie. Obviously, I went to McGill University. Uh, didn't play football very long. You know, football was not my first sport. I was a hockey kid growing up. Uh, you know, I didn't have a ton of money growing up. We were a pretty middle, average middle-class family. We did My parents did the best they could. And, you know, I wasn't exposed to big-time athletics, even at the amateur level, right? Uh, McGill was a big program. You know, there was more prestige in having gone to McGill for the academics than the football, for sure. Yeah. And uh, so, I, you know, my career at McGill was was uh, was pretty awesome as far as what it gave to me. And uh, I'm always forever grateful. And then I got drafted to the NFL. And, um, you know, one of the, at the time, I think only seven people had ever been drafted from the CIS. I think that's what it was called at the time, uh, into the NFL. I mean, we're talking about pre-YouTube days and, you know, the dial-up internet was still the, uh, the, the it, it's just a little bit better than the internet that I'm using right now. Slightly, but, slightly, yeah. yeah. Really, but yeah, dial-up internet was was uh, was all we had, right? So anyhow, so the um, getting to the NFL was pretty much like an astronomical feat. Anyhow, I don't know why I threw that in, but getting there, you know, was a lot bigger than me. I show up to Jacksonville, which is the team that drafted me, and it was awesome. Like, I mean, you got treated like kids, and you know, you went into lunchroom. They had a lunchroom, uh, and they had like a full short order cooking staff. It was a full buffet. They had like one tray full of like supplements and bars and shakes. And it was just like the Mecca. If you wanted to train, like it was in heaven and uh, it was off season uh, training workouts, the OTAs uh, where it was uh, 2001 was the year that the NFL switched from uh, I guess every other apparel uh, company and, and and maybe it might have just been Nike, but I think that every company was kind of doing stuff to exclusively Reebok. Like NFL was exclusively licensed to Reebok, and um, and so Coach Coughlin came in and he asked uh, everyone. He said, "Listen," he said, "they're bringing all the stuff from all the pro shops, 
And uh, basically, they're going to put it in this room. They're going to put it on tables. And you guys can go in, grab a couple of things. We've got to get rid of it all because next year it's all Reebok stuff. So we're like, oh, cool. So I hung out with a couple of other guys that were drafted with me. Uh, we were like five guys, actually. And we used to ride around in a big F-350 uh, pickup truck. And uh, and so, yeah, so we went in this uh, – this, I remember Coach Coughlin said, everyone better have a shower before you go in the room. So we're like, okay. So we walk off the field, and the first thing you see is all the veterans, like, running to the room. <laughs> Forget the shower. So we're like, nah, I guess we're not taking a shower. So we all run to the room in our cleats. And they had like these rows of tables set up with all kinds of stuff, like T-shirts and gloves and and lanyards and 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 parking pass holders and tukes and you name it, like whatever had a Jacksonville Jaguar logo on it, it was in that room. So you know, I walked in, the Canadian shy kid from Montreal, you know, walked in very politely, you know, grabbed the grabbed the T-shirt and grabbed a pair of gloves and maybe a pair of shorts. And, uh, you know, there may be a couple of other things. And then, you know, me and my buddies, we all grabbed a couple of things and we ran to his car because we didn't want to leave in the locker room. You know, it was like, oh, this is like gold, right? You're getting free stuff. And uh, we go run to the F-350, throw all our stuff in. And then uh, next thing you know, I look across the parking lot and it's Fred Taylor, who's like our star running back, right? Like he's making what, like $3 million a year, I'm sure, like yeah. at that time. Yeah. Who knows? He was making a lot of money. And he has one of these little, like, two-door Mercedes convertibles. Like, it's just, like, enough space to fit two bodies in it and the, and the, and the roof in the trunk. But he, he, he's opening the trunk, and he has this humongous box. Like, this box is, like, I don't know, it was, it was at least a four-foot-tall box full of, like, T-shirts and whatever he had in there. And he's trying to stuff it in his trunk. And <laughs> I look at the guys. I'm like, guys, it's going to be $3 million, and he's taking everything. Let's go back. So we went back in the room and I, was, I didn't have a box or anything. And I was looking like, well, how can I get more stuff? And I looked and under one of the tables was a huge Jacksonville Jaguars hockey bag. And it was like this big duffel bag. And it said, I still have it. Like, I still have it. <laughs> of course I have it. And it was like a high quality bag too. <laughs> right, so I found that bag and then I struck gold. Because once I found the bag, I just walked by the tables. I just started swiping whatever. I didn't care what it was. I, I was like... I would just walk to the table and just dump as much stuff in there as I could. And Johnny was, was born. So, oh, I said, three, that's I'm okay. I'll, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I got it. And, got it. Uh, and yeah, so, so like, but the thing is, I didn't even stop to check sizes. I just grabbed and ran. And so the bag weighed about 280 pounds because I had to bring it home on the airplane. And, <laughs> and, uh, it was like, I had like, you know, they have like these, uh, wind, uh, wind jackets. Like it's, yeah. it's a pullover wind jacket. Yeah. Yeah. I, a 5XL. I had nobody to give that to, but for some reason there was a 5XL. There was like 4XL shorts, like 3XL, 4XL polo shirts. Like I just grabbed whatever I could, right? So I uh, I, I uh, flew home to Montreal and I went back to Miguel and I brought this humongous bag to the locker room at Miguel and I zipped it or unzipped it and then I just started. I was like Santa Claus. I was just throwing Jacksonville Jaguar stuff to everyone. I have guys. That every once in a while, yeah, it was funny. I uh, a few months ago, uh, when I was flying to Vegas, a guy sits behind me and he sees I was wearing my Grey Cup rings, and uh, he's a zero and I'm like, yeah, how's it going? And he's like, oh, I was your kicker in your last year, McGill. Like I was the backup kicker, and he says his name, and we reconnect. Matthew Soulier was his name, and. Uh, 
And anyway, so we get talking. He's like, man, I'll never forget that day you came in with that bag and you opened it up and you started throwing stuff to all of us. It was the best day ever. And yeah, so from that day, I was kind of Johnny Free Trap. So many stories in my career where I noticed opportunities to, you know, uh, for free crap that people <laughs> don't want or, you know, and, and I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm resourceful, resourceful. So, so to take it to like where it's evolved now, like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm a nobody now. Right. Uh, yeah. So, right. You're a nobody. Sports. I, I'm, I'm a really just, you know, a single dad living at home, going for a job, do my thing. But, you know, I like movies and, uh, Actually, it was funny. It was a few weeks ago. It was actually, well, it was before everyone went crazy. Or actually, it was right when everyone was going crazy. So this is what was happening. As the world was going crazy, buying boxes and boxes of toilet paper, right? Like, yeah. So I would go to Walmart. Everyone's, like, taking all the toilet paper. You see them walking out. Yeah. Here I am walking out with, like, shopping carts full of cereal boxes. Like, I must have had, I think I had 20 cereal boxes. Cheerios, Lucky Charms, uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Uh, those are the three the three types of cereals I bought. And you might ask, well, why would you buy cereal boxes? Why would you be stocking up on cereal boxes? Now, I really wasn't worried about the end of the world at this moment. I, I, I thought at that point, that was, I think, right before the NHL cut their, cut their season. Okay. I, was still, I was still kind of in the everyone's overreacting thing. Right. I, I was there, like everyone else. But I bought these 20 boxes of cereal because on every box, if you if you buy two boxes, you get a free movie pass. And so when I walked in and I realized that the cereal boxes were being sold for $4 and I could get a movie pass and two boxes of cereal for $8 is a win. It's an absolute win. So... I'm walking out with cereal boxes while everyone's walking out with toilet paper, but I'm doing it not because I'm worried about the end of the world. I just want to watch free movies between now and June. Unfortunately, <laughs> so now I just got a whole bunch of cereal that I got to eat with my kids during this pandemic time. But because what I realized, and I probably you realize this too, uh, children who are living under the... Um, oppression of the COVID-19 virus are hungrier kids yes. than kids that go to school all day. Yeah. Because literally, my kids can eat all day long when at home, <laughs> but when they're at school, I'll pack them a full lunch with granola bar, healthy fruits, vegetables, sandwich, and sometimes they'll come home and that lunch bag is full, and I don't get it. So I'm assuming that one of the side effects of this, this whole COVID-19 virus is that kids are a lot hungrier. Don't worry, because I got a lot of cereal for them. And you got movie passes. And you got movie passes. Yeah. Um, so, Jacksonville, yeah. Cincinnati, the New York Jets, Dallas Cowboys. Did I miss anybody? Yeah, but not. Yeah, that's. No, we'll of, get to the World League in a second. No, no. But I was gonna say that's not the order, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's, that's the teams, right? That's the teams. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was Dallas like? What was it playing or being around America's team like? It was cool. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, it was, it was big, uh, like it was, it was bigger than me. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I wish, I wish my amateur career prepared me for that type of. Pressure. When you were in Dallas, how many years had you been playing football when you were in uh, Dallas? Six. Okay. So I you... had played 
Five years at McGill and one full year prior. Okay. So you had been, you'd been in football for six years when you arrived with Jerry Jones as Dallas Cowboy. Yeah, yeah. Something tells me you were the odd man there. Well, it, it was a, it was a, yeah, you want to know the odd man story. So here's the story. So I got cut by Jacksonville on a Sunday. It was the last cuts after training camp. We had played the Cowboys that the, the previous Thursday. So Thursday was our final preseason game. Uh, we played the Cowboys. Then they waited about three days to make cuts. They've made all the final cuts on Sundays. I actually had a really good game against the Cowboys, especially in the long snapping department. Um, their long snapper had a pretty terrible game. That game was raining. We played at, I think we were at Texas Stadium. Pretty sure it was Texas Stadium. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a rainy, rainy game. Their snapper didn't, didn't snap so well. So, uh, I get cut by the, by the, um, Jaguars, the Jaguars on a Sunday. I flew home to Montreal Sunday night. I did all my laundry that was sitting in my Jacksonville Jaguars duffel bag from the previous story. Yes, correct. Okay. And uh, and uh, that afternoon, I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, you kind of bummed out. You got cut. But at the same time, it was it was still like, oh, my gosh, like this is crazy. I didn't know what my career was going to be. I had been drafted by the Eskimos. So there was a few possibilities. But, again, it's just everything was so surreal. And uh, I remember uh, going to the park that day to snap to my girlfriend at the time. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, so, so what happened was I, we did all the laundry. I went to the park to snap. I said, you know, the only thing I can do is just keep practicing. Hopefully someone calls. Anyways, that night, by the time I got back from the park, my agent called me and said that the Cowboys signed me. And I had to get on a flight that night. So... I flew home. I got home like Sunday at 6 p.m., did all the laundry, went to the park. By 6 p.m., I was back in an airplane flying to Dallas. I get to Dallas, uh, which was crazy, at the DFW airport. And uh, the next morning, there was this torrential downpour, torrential downpour in Dallas. And uh, they say, hey, listen, you got to be ready at like, uh, uh, I think it was like, let's say 8 a.m., uh, bring your suit and we're going to bring you to the stadium. We're going to give you a little workout. So I go uh, to the stadium. I bring my suit. And uh, next thing you know, they're like, well, we were going to do a little uh, uh, long snap, uh, you know, just to see how you, how you snap outside, but it's pouring rain. So what we're going to do is we're going to just mark off 15 yards in the, in the locker room. And you and the guy that was snapping here are going to have a little snap off. And so I walk in the locker room, and there's my competition. Mike Solo was his name. And uh, they say, Mike's going to snap 10 balls. You're going to snap 10 balls. And one of you is going to stay, and one of you is going to go. And uh, so I walked in, and I snapped 10 balls, and Mike snapped 10 balls, and we both did pretty well. And then we snapped 10 field goal snaps each, and we both did pretty well. And they said, okay, uh, Mike, go, go uh, see Coach in, the, in his office. And they said, Randy, put on your suit. So I was like, oh, okay. So um, next thing you know, uh, I was in my suit. And I guess while I was putting on my suit, they cut Mike. Ooh. And, uh, yeah, and uh, it's pretty cruel. And uh, next thing you know, they threw me in an Escalade. And I remember it was like, like uh, I'd never been in like a rich vehicle at the time. And that's like, the leather smells really nice. So I'll never <laughs> the they say your sense of smell is your best memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll never forget the smell of, 
of uh, rich Corinthian leather. leather. <laughs> Whatever that leather was, I'll always remember that smell. Yeah. And um, I jump in the Escalade and they drive me to this uh, hotel. And, and next thing you know, they put me in the escort me in the back entrance, like the kitchen. And if you know anything about hotels, like what the public sees is very beautiful. And behind the scenes, it's very like, it looks like a warehouse. Yeah. So anyhow, so I'm uh, being ushered through this maze of doors and corridors. And finally, I'm in like the back where this like huge, um, looked like a kitchen. And they stick me in line. And it was basically the Dallas Cowboys team. All the guys, they were all in their suits and stuff. And they just stuck me in line between two humongous offensive linemen. Uh, or I didn't even know what they were. Off- anyway, it was two humongous guys. And these guys look at me like, like who is the dog? And they're calling some guy. They're calling like they're they're waving over like one of the team uh, communication guys. Be like, yo, yo, we got some guy here. And they're like, oh no, don't worry, he's on the team. He's like, he's in. The team. And basically, within like two minutes of like, what am I doing here? Uh, this line is moving forward. This line of players moving forward. And 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 within two minutes of that, the curtain opens. And it's like, and the newest member of the Dallas Cowboys right off the airplane. Randy Chevrolet is like, oh, just follow the spotlight. It's going to lead you to your seat. And that was like my introduction to Dallas Cowboys. And it was like a, um, I don't know if it was a, if it was a sponsor or a season ticket holder dinner, but it was basically this, this um, meet, meet the, the public lunch. So that was, uh, that was my introduction to Dallas. Wow. What yeah, a so story. And, uh, you know, speaking of world events, that also was the, uh, uh, the year 9-11 took place. So that was a very surreal, that was a whole surreal chapter in my career because not only was like, yeah, I'm playing for the Dallas Cowboys, like, oh, I'm living in, in the United States when, you know, bombs are going off and I'm playing for America's team and America doesn't seem to be too popular right now. So there was a lot of, of interesting uh, yeah. events going on while I was playing there and, and just, uh, yeah, the world changed that year for sure. I might be misrepresenting, but wasn't your exit from Dallas somewhat interesting too? Yeah, I mean, interesting is because I always put a story to everything. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, we. Uh, so when I was in Dallas, it was uh, we had a kicking coach, and as kicking coach, he was quite uh, he was quite the guru. He was known for for finding diamonds in the rough, and he was a nice guy. And you know, I got along with him pretty well, and. You know, he had, uh, I think his wife was from Italy. So he liked the fact that I was an Italian kid from Montreal and I spoke Italian and I did Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonations and stuff. So he loved me. And what happened was midway through the two, through my eight games there, actually it was like right away, our kicker was in a bit of a funk. Our kicker was a great guy, but he was in a funk. And, and, and a kicker's in a funk. You can tell they're in a funk when they're missing the easy kicks in a game and when they can't hit uh, a field goal even off their tee in practice. And so this guy who was known as a guru, you know, and, and he was known as a guru because he seemed to find these, like a diamond in the rough would be, you know, going to get a Division three kid and turning him into a kicker for the Dallas Cowboys. He seemed to have that reputation and that clout. And very few teams in the NFL at the time had a kicking coach. So he was the guru. And um, our kicker was missing a lot of kicks. Our special teams were terrible. Uh, that You know, I was playing for Dallas Cowboys post-Troy post Aikman, Post Michael Irving, post Deion Sanders, those guys were still getting paid, you know, two or three years after their retirement. So their salary cap was was a mess. Like it was, you know, the, our quarterback was Quincy Carter, uh, you know, who was, you know, if he didn't get, if he got paid as much as Demarcus Russell, maybe people would have labeled him bust. I don't know. Like, he, you know, he never panned out. Our backup was Ryan Leaf, you know, like 
it was a, a, a ragtag group. Hey, and listen, you know, if, if, if anything, I'll, I'll say they brought a Canadian kid from a small school too. That's kind of how they were yeah. building the team. Uh, you know, because I don't want to say that I was great and everyone was terrible, but it was it wasn't probably their dream team, let's just say. And our special teams were bad, and so our kicker was missing kicks a game. Every game it seemed like either we had a big return on us or a block punt or, or, or missed kicks, and it was just bad, bad football. You know, and and if you, you fast forward to my career with uh, Coach Huffman on the stands, he said you can't play bad football, and we played a lot of bad football, turnovers, penalties. And terrible special teams plays bad football. We did all three of that. We did that well. So it seemed like for the eight weeks that I was there, uh, you know, the four or five lockers next to me, uh, figuratively, uh, there was always four or five guys that were in and out. So basically four or five guys would get cut, four or five new guys would come in. It was just this revolving door, trying to plug guys in to see who can do this and who can do what. And, and so, so yes, yeah, so we went on with that for eight weeks. And um, after, and, and, and the other thing, there was this beat reporter for the Dallas Cowboys. He's still there. Uh, I'm not too fond of him because he never ever once talked to me. But he was best friends with a long snapper that was there for 11 years before I got there. He was best friends with him. And this guy was a victim of the salary cap because at the time they didn't have protections for specialist players. So his salary got too high, they had to dump him. So this guy made, a, uh, made it his business every day to write something bad about me in the paper like if the coach asked me to try snapping a ball with a different grip this guy standing 200 yards away would be watching and if the ball bounced on the ground he'd write something like oh yeah you know proving that the Cowboys still made a bad move you know and it was just this constant um narrative that he was writing even though I was really like a yes man to the coaches coaches asked me to try everything and I was like yes yes sir okay yes sir it was the kid from Canada the the the, the naive rookie that did it wanted to please the coaches and uh and so this guy kept writing poor stuff about me and uh, the second last game with the Cowboys that I played uh we played in New York and our kicker missed two kicks we had a punt blocked and it was it was a pretty ugly game and uh, I could see this beat reporter telling the kicking coach while I'm sitting in my locker room after the game, I could see him uh, motioning with his hands that the snaps were too high. And they weren't. The snaps were all fine, like on the field goal. And they were just having this back and forth. But it looked like the coach was actually entertaining this guy's opinion. And this was a reporter, like, showing, like, I, I could see. I, yeah, I, yeah. Was, I was watching this pantomime, and I was like, man, I should go say something. But I was too much of a rookie. I was too respectful not to just get up and be like, man, what's your problem? Like, he never once talked to me, right? Right. He never said, what's going on? Because I would have said, well, coaches are asking me to try something. Or, you know, like, so I never had a, a say. So anyhow, um, we had a pretty terrible game. And that coach, uh, he, he really, you know, he was always nice to me. And this, that week, we go to uh, prepare for our next opponent, which is the Atlanta Falcons. And we go to Dallas. Uh, to Texas Stadium on the Wednesday, just me, coach, uh, the punter, and the kicker, basically our kick operation. And that's where we would work on our snaps, our punts, and our kicks because the, the punter was also the holder. And that, that, was, the, that was the moment I knew I was, I was uh, going to be done. The coach walked to me. He's like, Chev, he's like, I need you to snap the ball as fast as you can. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, on the field goals, Tim needs to see everything. 
and uh, we just need to give him a bit more time. So I need you to snap the ball as fast as you can. And I said, but coach, you know, if, if I snap it fast out of my control zone, you know, I, I'm bound to snap a wild one. And he said, don't worry about it. Micah, who was the punter in the hole, he said, Micah can catch anything. Don't worry about it. And uh, I was really, really uh, uncomfortable with that because confidence is an athlete's number one weapon sure. and lack of confidence is an athlete's number one enemy. And uh, so I was doing these snaps, just firing back as fast as I could between my legs on the field goals, and I wasn't comfortable. And the whole time he's like, oh, you're doing a great job. This is awesome. This is awesome. And meanwhile, I'm just like, oh, man, I feel like, you know, the wild thing. And I'm like, this is not good. And, and uh, anyhow, so I left that session and I went home that night. And um, uh, Tanya, who was, who was my wife at the time, my ex-wife, she was there with me in Dallas. And I said, uh, I said, Tanya, you start packing. He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I said, I think I'm the next guy to go. And I said, I think the writing's already on the wall. And I explained. And so that was it. So we go to Atlanta. We play the Falcons. And... Uh, go out for a field goal snap and uh, coach Hoffman is at the one end of the bench and he's like, chef, he's like, I need you to snap the ball as fast as you can. So I was like, Oh, okay. And I said, I don't really want to do it. He said, Just throw it back as fast as you can. We need to. So I run out the field. <clears throat> I snapped the ball as fast as I can. And it was a high snap, like super high. And uh, the holder, Micah had to reach above his helmet to catch it, bring it down. But Tim kicked the field goal and the field goal was good. So I run back to the bench, and I knew it was high. Like, I was just, oh, my God, like, this is bad to worse. And I run off the bench, and I have uh, Dave Campo, who was the head coach at the time, and Joe Alvazano, who was, like, an NFL special teams guru at the time. They're yelling at me, like, what are you doing? Like, F-bombs, you know, what we were talking about coaching styles before? Yeah. Well, totally opposite of the coaching style that I gravitate towards. Anyways, they're yelling at me like, just, you're, you're going to get, you're going to be pumping gas back in Canada after this game. If you keep this up, blah, 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 like that. I walked to the end of the bench, you know, to get like, you know, to go where my kicker buddies are and the kicking coaches and kicking coach. He just gives me a little thumbs up. He's like, good job. That's perfect. Hey, just keep doing that. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> so we go out for another field goal. Uh, snap, same thing, Whoop, over the, uh, like higher than, like above the, the, the holder's head, but he brings it down, kick is good, and everyone's jumping up and down for joy because we got uh, three more points, go to the bench. Coach Campo's losing his mind, like just like a little Italian guy, like he looked like a fire hydrant. And uh, Joe Zano's yelling at me too, they're all yelling at me, I go to the end of the bench, and very subtly, Coach Hoffman's like, good job, Chef. Just keep it up. Perfect. Tim has all the time in the world to see the kick. So in the meantime, we got a punt uh, returned like 70 yards on us. I don't know if it was a touchdown, but I think it was a pretty game-changing punt return on us. Our special teams were still terrible. And then we go out for another field goal. So I'm walking out to go, to go snap the field goal. Next thing you know, like I'm, I'm walking. Or, or jogging, and next thing you know, I just feel like you know, like the horse collar tackle turned around, and and five foot two, Dave Campbell looking up at me, pointing in my face. He's like, "You better not f this up!" Like, and grab me by the face, man, shaking me. He's like, "Don't f this up!" I'm like, "Ah, okay, sure." Turn around, go out. 
I snapped the most perfect, fastest ball I've ever snapped in my life. It was so fast and so perfect, it went right through the holder's hands, the holder who was supposed to catch everything, hit him in the face, the ball bounced up, and our kicker grabbed it, and instead of going down, he tries to run. He gets crushed by two humongous linebackers and breaks his ankle. And, uh, yeah, that was my last game with the Dallas Cowboys. You know, the... Um, the the, uh, the beat reporter came in after and he started like directing all these questions to the coaches. Oh, are you going to make a change? Are you going to, you know, don't you think it's time to make a change? I could hear it all at this point. I was pretty ashamed because I, I knew that I had a hand in it and it was going to look like it was me the whole time. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and Jerry Jones, you know, he kept saying, you know, I, I believe that Chevrolet is, is a cowboy. He works hard. He's a good player he's easy you know you guys don't see the work he puts in blah 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 yada 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 but within two days you know we flew home sunday night monday tuesday day off i got called into the office and uh that was it uh for my days in dallas the head coach you know cut me um it was nice that jerry jones called me actually three weeks later and he told me that he uh he, he actually really loved me as a player and he wished he could have kept me but he alluded to, you know, when the ship is sinking, uh, you don't throw the captains of the ship off. You got to sometimes throw the crew off. And uh, and I respected that because he, he called me. and he, I mean, it was three weeks later, and he yeah. said he didn't want to make the decision, but he did. And, uh, you know, um, it, it was tough because, you know, they pinned a lot of that on me. And I was like, man, I was just doing what you guys asked me to do. I was doing my best. And uh, But sports – doesn't isn't very forgiving and you know history is is often written by he who's left standing but uh you know to that story i mean i went i was i wound up with the uh the bengals a few weeks later and you know went over all my dallas film because they would not have signed me if if i was a liability and went over all my dallas film with the special teams coach there and you know he loved me and he he, he said the same thing he's like there were no issues here you know, and I explained to him what was going on, and he knew what was going on. And even when I went to New York Jets a few years later, went through all my film with Dallas, and it was the same thing. We dissected every snap of mine. And, uh, you know, Mike Westoff was the special teams coach in the Jets, and he was a guru as well. And, uh, you know, he was of the same opinion. He's like, you know, what they did was wrong. And how they protected, like a lot of the stuff that they pinned on me was wrong. You know, we, we played the Raiders when I was with the Cowboys. We had two blocked field goals in a game. I don't think some teams have two blocked field goals in a year. And basically we had one play where a guy was just supposed to count. He was supposed to block out. He blocked down because he thought the guy down was his guy. And then the next field goal, instead of blocking down, which was where his guy was, if he counted properly, he blocked out because he thought, oh, I should block out. He didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> two times the field goal got blocked. And it was interior, so it was between, like, uh, I think it was between tackle and, and tight end. And a guy comes in, blocks field goal twice, and they pin that on you. They said, oh, your field goal snaps are too slow. It's like, have you ever tried the time field goal snap? If you get laces in a fast snap, you, you, you're not even going to get your hand on the stopwatch fast enough. There's yeah. almost no way to time it. So, you know, it was tough. It was tough. It was, it was a tough lesson learned. Again, I was still a really young naive rookie, uh, but with me, I always take things with a grain of salt. And, uh, you know, there was definitely a learning experience. You know, w what I learned in that moment is is um, that when I was at McGill, my coaches had my best interest at heart. They were there to develop me as a player, as a man, 
You know, it was about the it was about the team, but it was about the individuals within the team and trying to make them into men. That's what university football was. I thought that's what professional football was, but I realized right away it was about everyone saving their own skin in that business. Uh, and uh, you know, this guy who used to call me and tell me to come to his daughter's uh, birthday parties and you know. Uh, ask me for recipes from my mom, Italian recipes and talk and blah, blah, blah. Not one phone call I ever got from that guy after I got released. And, uh, you know, so that's the business that that is. And I would say it is similar in the CFL, not as much, but it's similar. I mean, it's it's the world of pro sports. Sure. So what, yeah. what have you done for me lately? Or what are you going to do for me tomorrow? Not even lately. What are you going to do for me tomorrow? Uh, we are in conversation with my pal, Randy Chevrier. By the way, Sport Calgary is a volunteer-based nonprofit society guided by a deep love of sport and a mission to help the sport help sport grow in Calgary. Easy for me to say. Um, I, wanna, I, I don't want to gloss over your time in, in Calgary or in the CFL. I do want to spend some time on, on your passion project and, and what I admire the most about you. But tell me a little bit about um, first playing in Edmonton and being kind of one of those rare birds that played on both sides of the Labor Day Classic, right? Yeah, no, that was fun. I mean, obviously I was very honored when Edmonton drafted me in the CFL draft. I, I remember walking in from practice in Jacksonville in the summer workouts and learning that I had been drafted, uh, I think, fifth overall in the first round, which was pretty neat. And, uh, you know, it was Coach Higgins was also the GM at the time, and uh, he he drafted me him along with um, Don Matthews and um, um, Greg Marshall. They were all kind of the guys that really were big fans of mine. Uh, and I thought that was neat to be, um, to be, to be uh, drafted by a storied organization like the Eskimos. Uh, I didn't grow up watching a ton of the CFL. There was no Alouettes in Montreal when I was growing up at those pivotal uh, sport watching age. Let's just say the Alouettes had left town. And so, but I knew who the Eskimos were. And so it was a big honor for me to go there and play. And I mean, we had two fantastic years when I was there. 2002, I joined the team midway through the season uh, after being released by the Bengals. And, uh, uh, it was just the right timing for me. They were, you know, they were down a bunch of Canadian defensive tackles. Um, I thought it would be a great opportunity for me to get in and step in and play right away, which it was. And uh, almost immediately, I felt like I was uh, in a family. Uh, you know, and again, again, that's big kudos to uh, Coach Higgins and the, at the atmosphere he creates. And uh, we went to the Western Final that year. And then, uh, obviously, we lost at home in Edmonton, which was really tough, against the Alouettes. And the year later, we uh, got back to the Grey Cup against the Alouettes in Regina. And again, it was it was uh, it was um, it was neat because you go from losing and kind of you know this shameful performance in front of your fans, you, you, disappointment for sure, to being able to come back with an unmatched resolve and go through adversity and then finish the way you want to. It was, it was really neat. Uh, you know, I'm all about the redemption story, and that was a really neat redemption story for us. And the character and the quality of the guys we had in that room, uh, you know, was unmatched. Uh, the leadership we had in that in that room, the talent we had in that room. Now, you know, I don't know if it was because it was uh, pre-salary uh, cap era. It was just before salary cap era, but the the amount of talentless stars we had in that room, Hall of Fame type players but also leaders was, was just unbelievable. Um, you know, so to be a young guy in the CFL and just be sort of 
absorb all this, it was, it was, it was big time. Uh, you know, it really had an impact on my career, not only on, um, <clears throat> on, on modeling, uh, you know, you know, when we talk about coach Higgins and the type of coaches you want to play for, but also the type of professional you want to be. Um, <clears throat> we had guys on that team who were just unbelievable professional uh, athletes that, you know, um, Alfred Payton, yep. uh, who was the AFL sack master. I mean, he was known as a loose cannon, but when he was uh, on the field, uh, he, he was unbelievable. Uh, who else? Uh, Bruce Beaton was an amazing offensive line. Chris Morris, who's now the head coach at the, the U of A. Uh, U of A. Uh, Jason Tucker, Ricky Ray, Jason Moss, uh, you name it. Um, why, am I, why am I thinking the running back? Not Michael Souls. He played for Montreal. Mike Pringle. I mean, this guy, uh, I watched him for the Alouettes for years and just amazed at, at the workhorse he was. And then when you see him as a, as a teammate and that work, work ethic unmatched, I mean, I modeled myself off guys that didn't even play in my first year in Edmonton, but I knew how they were in the locker room. Like Jed Roberts, uh, you know, he was a lifelong Eskimo, uh, one of the great leaders in the locker room. When I got there, I was playing because him and another great leader in the locker room, Doug Peterson, two Canadian defense titles, both had season-ending injuries. But the type of leader they were in the locker room while injured really struck me. You know, and I didn't see that too. You know, I played a lot of years, and I, I know that when guys get injured, sometimes it's like, well, you know, they, they kind of melt away and they do their own thing. And these guys were right in there, and and uh, so yeah, it was it was neat. It was very impressionable. I'm a very impressionable person, and so to be in that type of organization early on in my career and to have success like we did, um, it, it really was uh, was amazing for me to absorb as an athlete because I know that I tried to give back that type of energy throughout my career, especially when I came to Calgary, because, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I did wind up on the other side of it. And again, it was thanks to Tom Higgins. Uh, you know, I had, after we won the Grey cup in Edmonton, uh, I was a free agent and I chose to pursue the NFL again. And that's how I wound up with the jets for a little bit. Yep. And uh, after the jets, I came back to Calgary in 2005 uh, and I had the choice. I could have gone to Edmonton or I could have gone to Calgary. And uh, truthfully, Edmonton offered me more money to go back at the time. But Tom Higgins had come to Calgary. And, you know, I weighed a couple of factors. And, and it wasn't just a money decision. But, you know, I knew the type of coach Tom was. I experienced uh, And it was a very tough decision because the new head coach in Edmonton at the time was Danny Machocha, who was my first midget coach. Hmm. And I would say that Danny Machocha uh, was, a, was a, a coach that, um, helped me along in my career before I was a professional athlete. Like, I think he had his eye on me from the day I started football saying, maybe this kid might be something when I didn't know I was. So it was a tough decision, but you know, I, I chose Calgary because you know what? Tom Higgins was the leader of the team and I knew his leadership style. Um, Calgary, there was a great opportunity uh, for a Canadian defensive lineman to play out the box, uh, they ran a three-four defense, and they had one Canadian defensive tackle that was our buddy Sheldon the Pasture. Right. Um, he had no backup, and Edmonton had you know six deep Canadian defensive tackles, and so I I made a calculated decision that if I came to Calgary, my career would probably be a little bit longer, and I think it worked out because I mean I don't think you're going to play it any longer than I did. But, um, yeah, you know, to be able to play for both these teams and most of my career, well, basically most of my career spent in Alberta, uh, is neat because, you know, 
knowing what that energy is and having seen both sides, I know what it means to both sets of fans. I mean, when I signed with Edmonton, uh, the first guy that picked me up at the airport, uh, I think his name is Rob Ralph, who's, I, I think he's a GM now or, or something, but at the time he was just a video guy. He said, listen, don't worry about anything. He said, win or lose, as long as we beat Calgary in the Labor Day Classic. And then when I signed in, in, in Calgary, uh, I remember the first uh, time I stepped into the old McMahon Stadium and Ron Rook was sitting there. Yep. Um, Ron or Doug? Doug? No, Ron. Ron. Ron is dead. Ron, oh, Ron. Doug Rook. Doug Rook. Sorry, Doug Rook. Yep. Doug Rook. Right. I knew I was wrong. I was Doug Rook. Old Doug Rook. You sat there and he used to drive the players and he had his great, he had his cane and his great cup ring. And he looked at me and he, says, he said, listen, Randy, he said, whatever you do, we care about one thing. We care about the Grey Cup, but we care more about you beating Edmonton on Labor Day Classic. Yep. And that was, you know, the first thing anyone told me in both cities, and I knew what it meant. And you know, I was uh, very fortunate to be on on uh, both sides of some very memorable uh, Labor Day Classics for sure. Ron Rook tells the great story about the year that the uh, Stamps won the Grey Cup with Doug Flutie, and they went to do the season ticket renewals, and they lost. 15, 20 season ticket holders, and they couldn't understand. This is a Grey Cup champion team, and they called them up, and everybody that, that canceled their season tickets, yeah, you won the Grey Cup, but you didn't beat the Eskimos on Labor Day, which yeah. I think is a fantastic story, right? And you know what? It, it really um, it reeks of, of what's important in our country. Uh, you know, it's that... Um, that community rivalry, you know, it's a big league, yeah. but it's still the community roots run deep, right? And, oh, yeah. And I hope it never loses that because, you know, and I hope it grows. You know, I'd love to see a CFL where there's a team in Quebec City to spark some sort of rivalry in Montreal. Sure. I'd, you know, I'd love a stronger Toronto for sure. Somehow they got to figure that situation out. But but what we have here, uh, well, you know, I and, and truthfully – what we've had here with the Eskimos and what we've had with the Riders. Yeah. Uh, and even, even with, with the BC Lions for a period there, it, it was it really centralized in this Western, uh, you know, the Western side of Canada, but you feel it. You feel that the, 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 you know, the, almost like the Friday night lights atmosphere. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and I love that. I love that. You know, you mentioned that I didn't finish my uh, career in Calgary. And I did play three games with the Riders. And, you know, for years, they were my most hated enemy. Like, you know, in Edmonton and in Calgary, I would say that, you know, I remember in Edmonton, when we played for the Riders, I'll never forget this, in 2000 and, I believe it was 2002, or no, 2000, no, it was 2003, right before the Western Final. They purchased the billboard right above the Edmonton Eskimos coaches administration office was, was, it wasn't in the stadium. It was just off to the side to the back of Clark field. There is yep. a billboard on the side of the road. I don't know what road is maybe 107th or whatever it is. Yep. Not too Big billboard. And it was uh, rider nation. We walk among you. And I thought, isn't that the coolest thing? Right. And that was in my second year. <laughs> in I realized that this is cool. And so fast forward all the way to the end of my career to be able to finish with the riders to get even just a little sip of that cup to know what it's like to play for that team, to play in that city in front of those fans, closing out the old uh, Mosaic Stadium, Taylor Field. 
that was pretty special for me then. And most people might write that off as a, as a nothing chapter in my career, but it's actually very special. Um, it, it is. And I want to get to that. Just let me jump in there because I, I think you need a little context to the, what you're about to say. Chris Jones was one of those coaches. We talked about, he was not John Hoffnagel, at least to the media, right? He was a win at all cost. He was uh, underhanded. He was a pirate and he was, e- he was easy to put a black hat on, right? He was a bad guy. And he's, you know, he had, he was, he had that whole other team living in a house that we weren't supposed to know about. He was breaking rules and stuff like that. Squad. Right. But tell the story about what he did for you. So, so yeah. So, you know, um, it's interesting because you bring up all those things and um, you know, I had been, uh, out, like, you know, I, I would have loved to finish my career with the Stamps. I sure. would have loved to play yeah. another couple of years, um, you know, but that wasn't the way the story ended there. And it ended not the way I wanted. And and I had been out of football for a while, and I still wanted to play. Um, and I didn't have many opportunities that year. There weren't too many people uh, calling a 40-year-old uh, to go play football, which I thought, man, these guys are crazy because I'm still the best. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but yeah, so so the season happened, and uh, I remember I did uh, I did a couple of uh, uh, I did a sideline game and a pregame thing with the um, Stamps Radio, guys. Yeah. yeah, Stamps Radio for the game days, and it was right around the time that uh, Coach Jones' team got fired, fined for uh, the illegal practice squad players, which I later learned they called themselves the Chicken Squad, and. Uh, <laughs> And so here I am on the air giving my opinion because I'm at this point I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm not playing football ever again, right? right? So I'm like, you know, I think the CFL didn't punish them hard enough. They should have got rid of draft picks. They should have the you know I was just like, yeah, cheated. And you know, again, Coach Jones wore the same black hat for me too, truthfully. Uh, you know, personally, when he came in with Huffnagel in 2008, I was still a a, um, a top producing defensive lineman the year before. And I didn't get a chance. Yeah, I wasn't given a chance, and I I harbored that for for my whole career with the Stamps. That you know, uh, Jones didn't give me a chance to prove what I can do. You know, they moved right over me on the depth chart, put some young guys that you know at the time weren't even ready. You know, and and it just kept being this revolving door. And here I was every time, like give me a shot, give me a shot, give me a shot. I never got. So I harbored that, and uh, you know, and then when he left in uh, 2012 in the middle of the night and then we had to play in the great cup it was easy to hate him a little bit more and then you know kind of the stories that you hear with the edmonton and and then to saskatchewan he right. he did wear, he wore the black hat for sure yeah and so then then this cheating thing came up and i thought oh you know here it is so you know i'm saying all this stuff and and then uh i got a call on labor day the riders were still in a playoff hunt and um, they, they, John Murphy was the assistant GM there, and they wanted me to come down because their guy got hurt, and they wanted me to play. And I said I'd go, and I was ready to go. And then all of a sudden, it was like lines of commute. I guess they were basically dealing with another guy that they wanted to look at for next year while they were talking to me. But I gave them a definite yes, and then they weren't calling me back trying to get this guy to go. Anyways, <laughs> they, they went with this young, unproven guy which I think their plan was, well, if our guy doesn't come back from injury, we're not going to have Chevry next year. We need a young guy. I think that's what they thought. So anyhow, so they didn't sign me. They signed this young guy. And in that game, uh, he blew two snaps. That would have 
kept their playoff hopes alive. They get missed a bunch of kicks, and and then after that, it was just that their ship was sinking very slowly. Anyhow, a couple of games later, that kid gets hurt, and now they need a guy to finish off the season. So uh, I'm that guy. Uh, they call me back, and um, and uh, they call me back. They call me back and said, "Would you play?" I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'd play. I'd love to play, right?" But here I am coming to play, and I'm like, "Oh, what if Coach Jones heard the things I said?" Right? Like I was kind of like, "Ah, you know." <laughs> I was like, oh, this is good. Maybe he's just coming to ruin me for my last three three games in, in my career. So anyhow, uh, I show up, and I was flying in and out because I had a full-time job. And I told him, I said, you know, I, I could maybe show up a couple of days before a game, but I can't go for – I can't stay for the three weeks. i got to go back to my job and, and my family and all that stuff. And they were okay with that. So fast forward to the last week of practice – uh, you know, all the guys were actually treating me really well. Everyone treated me super well. And, and like to the point where it was almost weird. I didn't understand what it was like to be treated this well. Like, you know, like it was like I was, I was, it was like I was not the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it felt nice. And so, so yeah, they were all nice to me. And, but the last week on, uh, I walk on the field and coach Jones looked at me and he said, uh, he said, hey, uh, Chevy, what do you think of the team? I was like, whoa. I said, like, man, I played for Huff for like eight years and he never asked me that. I'm like, what am I supposed to answer? Like, what do you answer? And at the same time, I had a pretty blunt answer that I wanted to give him if I ever had the opportunity to. But I didn't think I was going to get the opportunity <laughs> until that moment. So I thought, ah, oh, maybe I should just BS him or maybe, you know, and just go about my way and this, this, you know, the season's going to end and I'll go home and just be regular old Randy or I could say what I thought in my mind so I was like nah I'm gonna say what's on my mind so I said you know coach I said I said I really think you have a good team here I said but you know I think everyone is scared he said what do you mean I said well you have too many damn guys here I said you know you got the chicken squad still hanging around somehow I said you got all these guys here I said everyone's on edge I said listen I said every guy in this locker room knows they're replacing I said, I lasted 16 years knowing that while I'm doing my job here, you've got a couple of guys going to scour the teams all over the states to look for my next replacement. It's kind of a relationship between anxiety and performance that I get. That that bit of pressure that I sense of my competition out there keeps me sharp. I said, I think the nature of that um, – energy would change if my competition is right outside the door and he's having a full-on practice right after I'm done and they're ready in case I even step wrong and I said so you've got your rookies playing scared I think your veterans are playing scared I think even some of your leaders are playing scared just the veterans and the leaders are able to hide it a little better but I said in my opinion everyone is scared here I said, it just seems like it's too tight an atmosphere because you've created this atmosphere where everyone is over that level of, of optimal performance due to the anxiety of losing their job. They're at the point where it's like they can't even focus on their job because they think they, they, they can't even make a play because they're worried that the next guy is going to take their spot. And I said that. And he looked at me. He said, you really think so? I said, Yeah. And then he walked one way, I walked the other way. I'm like, oh, my God, what did I just do? This, and this was going into the last game of my career. I was like, oh, my God. Like, 
you know, I was like, why did I do that? Like, you're so dumb. You should just play the game and go home. And then, you know, maybe you get a call next year. You never know, right? <laughs> Anyhow, so fast forward to the last game of the season in BC. Um, I walked on the field. Uh, and uh, he said, Jeff, he's like, I want you to be my captain for the game and go take the coin toss. And that was the first time that I had ever been asked to take the coin toss. All those years in Calgary, all that, like I had never been asked. And and the one game, uh, my last game of my career, it turned out to be uh, this coach who I had a different opinion of before I got, I got to, to play for him. And before he, he – uh, he won a lot of respect in my eyes. And I'll never forget after I left the game, the coin was in my locker, which I thought that was pretty cool. And I still have that coin. So it's, uh, yeah, it was pretty sweet. Yeah. It, it changed my mind. I mean, I'm not that I'm a Chris Jones fan or anything like that, but tip of the hat and respect for someone who appreciates the warriors and the guys who've gone through it. There is something to be said about that. I love that story. I'm glad you shared it with us. Um, listen, we we could talk more football. We certainly didn't talk a lot about the Stampeders, but we, we will maybe bring you back and do that. How did you get into bullying prevention? How did, did it find you or did you find it? Um, it initially found me after the 2012 season. Uh, someone approached, I was actually totally by accident. Um, one, of the, the, um, one of the owners of the Stamps at the time, Ted Heller, he, uh, <clears throat> actually, I think it was the year before, it was 2000, I don't know, it was 2004, pretty sure. Uh, he contacted me and said, listen, one of my friends, uh, his uh, child has, uh, no, he actually was just like, hey, uh, one of my friends' uh, uh, kids' uh, schools would, was wondering if they could have a visit from St. Peter, and we know you like that stuff, so would you mind going? I was like, sure. I mean, listen, I, I would do it anyways. But when, you know, the owner of the team sure. asked you, but you, you know, he signs a check. So you, you want to make sure you, you don't say no. Uh, but I would have done it. Anyhow, so I, I walked to the school and, uh, you know, normally you meet the staff inside. You walk in and, you know, hello. And, but the principal ran out to meet me at the parking lot as I was coming up, which I thought was odd. And she's like, oh, my gosh. OK, I'm so glad you're here. So we have this huge problem with bullying. And we want you to address the school uh, about this topic today. And I was like, oh, okay. And now I know nothing about this topic at this point. Like, I know nothing. And I'm like, this is, this is, uh, this is kind of, uh, kind of intimidating. Yeah. You know, sure. you're in the gymnasium and you got like 300 kids there and they're hanging on every word and they're all rah, rah, rah. And basically I stood there for an hour, like, creating, concocting some story like I always do when I don't, I'm at a loss for words. And and uh, I don't know what I said, but I filled an hour of time talking about bullying and blah, blah, blah. And I thought it was the, I, I left there thinking I never ever want to do that again. Never want to BS kids and stuff. And they were like, this is the best thing we ever had and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, and in my head, I thought, oh my gosh, I never want to do that ever again. So that was the first instance and then after 2012 season, there was um, uh, this nonprofit that uh, I got in contact with through another former CFL player, long snapper, uh, that wanted me to do some speaking on their behalf in Calgary on the topic of bullying. So, I, you know, uh, I actually told them that I wasn't going to do it until I had a program. And I was waiting for them to send me materials, 
And they kept saying, yeah, we got a program for you. We got materials and stuff. And they never did. So what wound up happening is I would sit in coffee shops and just studying online, like uh, uh, Apple, um, uh, iTunes had like these uh, university courses. Yeah. University level courses. So I started reading up on them. I started reading resources and just compiling a whole bunch of information about bullying and then creating, I created a little one hour presentation, uh, really stripped it down to the bones. I wasn't trying to uh, solve anything. Uh, you know, I didn't have the, the resources to do too much, but basically to describe it, see what we can do, how we can be a little bit better. I related it to being on a team and uh, that's how I started. And I did about uh, two years of that before uh, I met up with uh, the good folks at uh, Dare to Care. Um, and they are a national uh, bully prevention um, uh, educational uh, program. And they basically hired me as one of their facilitators. They needed a male. Uh, they needed a strong male presence that uh, uh, could speak in front of large crowds. They liked my professional athletic background. They liked that I knew what I was talking about. And basically, it was, it was almost a seamless transition to uh, basically I was speaking the right language. And we just kind of uh, tweaked some of the stuff so we were all speaking the same language. Yeah. And I, you know, I learned a lot of their program. And we do full-day workshops half-day workshops with parents, kids. And so it really expanded uh, my work in the field because I, you know, through them, obviously there's more resources for schedule. Like when I was on my own, I was, you know, I was the guy trying to book it and it's hard. Like the, yep. you, know, you, you try to book one school well, you're on an email chain, you know, for days. And if anyone knows me, I'm not the best emailer in the world. I'm a, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a point and shoot. You tell me where to go, and I'll show up. And and yeah, and uh, that's why I love working with Dare to Care because you know they have people that are really good at that back end stuff, and I'm really good at what I do, which is you know I show up and I give everything I got to the kids. Uh, you know, I try to engage them on a on a personal level. I try to be very raw with them uh, to let them know that they're not alone. And uh, you know, I realize that uh, in my um, my life, my personal life, my career. I've witnessed, been affected, and, uh, and and seen the effects of bullying. Uh, and it's not just in schools. It, it's everywhere, right? And, right. Uh, and so, uh, really, I, I feel strongly about it. And uh, that's why I still continue to do it uh, to this day, yeah. It, it was such an honor to come watch you. Uh, you invited me to a school one time, and I came and I watched you talk. And um, it is your element. Um, you, you know it, you, but you make it accessible. That was the key to me. Um, are we making headway, Randy? You've been doing this for eight years. Um, it seems to me that the, the messaging is out. We've kind of gone from anti-bullying to now bullying prevention. So we've, we've changed the name a little bit, but are we making any headway? Uh, I guess I, the answer to that is I hope so. Yeah. Uh, I hope so. I mean, I, I don't know, uh, because, the headway is made in in uh, in the areas once you leave, if it's made. Yeah. You know, I don't go wave a wand. Uh, no one does. Uh, a lot of times you don't. You know, it's just like it's like when I'm a fireman. You know, you help at the time of the incident, but you, I don't know the story afterwards. I don't know what happens to you after I come to you. I don't know how they rebuild your house once it burns down. Like we don't. I don't get to see. Uh, the story. Sometimes we get some feedback. Sure. Um, 
you know, but uh, I'll, I'll flip it back to you with events like uh, um, the Brave game yeah. uh, that the Hitman put on and the awareness uh, that's been going on, uh, not just locally, but across, around the world. Uh, if there's an awareness and, and more heightened awareness, then I think we're making headway. You know, uh, the the enemy in that world has sort of evolved a bit. Like this online world is uh, is is an area that you know people didn't have to worry about 15 years ago, whereas now they do. Yeah. In fact, that's probably the primary source of where a lot of the bullying happens. And uh, you know, maybe we're not equipping our children with the knowledge. Um, with with the knowledge and the tools necessary, and that's what we try to do at Dare to Care. We try to equip kids with the knowledge, not just how to protect themselves, but also how to make critically thought out decisions. You know, um, is it realistic to say that kids are being given uh, very powerful weapons at very young age? When you talk about smartphones and access to to, to all these sorts of social media pro- uh, platforms, maybe. But unfortunately, that's where we are in the world. We can't just start taking away everyone's phones and telling them not to use it because they are, uh, you know, online. I was mm-hmm. reading something on Twitter the other day, and I'm, I wonder if you caught it. But, uh, you know, uh, people that are at home now starting to play like online games more than maybe they had. Yep. I remember it was, it was it was a whole thread about the NHL. Uh, EA Sports NHL game, and they're like, "Oh, is this where all the racist people go?" Because there's just so much foul language and terrible yep. talk and and so anonymity uh, right yeah absolutely so are we doing enough i don't know like um it, it's it, it is it making headway it's a tough question i think we're making headway but like everything it, it's evolving and you know we have to evolve too and you know unfortunately dare to care is a is uh you know on the front line is a three-person operation right i'd lie to you if i said we went to every school uh, in Calgary, even right. you know, we, you know, maybe we hit 40 schools a year, if that. You know, that's not a lot. There are hundreds of schools here, you know, and that's just Calgary. So, you know, it, it's tough because the buy-in has to be there, and it can't be a, oh, we look to Randy to solve our problems and then it's solved. It's like no, you know, when we go in uh, to to deliver our programming, it's with the expectation that they're going to put in some of the work. And that's, you know, and, and unfortunately, there are going to be some schools that we're just, uh, you know, we're just a check mark in a box. You know, and that's that's how people are with everything these days, right? Oh, it's like, okay, we got that program in. Oh, we got that. But some schools buy in. And the schools that buy in, we do see, we do see progress. We do see, you know, I got kids coming up to me that, I mean, at, at this point, I've seen thousands of kids. I don't even know where I'm at. You know, and they'll come up to me and you're the dare to care guy. Oh, you know, and. Yep. And they share stories. So, you know, and then every once in a while, I get the stories of how, how things have helped for someone. And, you know, again, just like education, uh, you know, every teacher would like every one of their students to become a rocket scientist because that might be the ultimate, uh, uh, the ultimate display of, of uh, achievement in academics. But not every kid does become a rocket scientist, but they do different things. And every once in a while, you do produce a rocket scientist and you think, oh, OK, I got through to to one of them or, or whatever, you know? I, so. I I wonder if we're not, and I hate to be that guy because it's always looking backward instead of looking forward, but I look at Dare to Care, I look at Be Brave, I look at, you know, end bullying that TELUS does. I look at um, uh, Hockey Talks or Bell Let's Talk, 
and I look at all of these programs that are in place that were not there when you and I were kids. You yeah. know, what what those what people were going through was taboo. You didn't deal with it. You just you accepted it. You went to school. Yeah, there's bullies at school. That's going to school. Yeah. I think we have pieces in place. I think we have programs in place. I think kids are better about articulating and talking and asking. Technology is changing the game, the, the playing field a little bit. But I wonder if we aren't getting closer and closer to a tipping point, at least as a society, we're accepting the responsibility of we have to have things for mental health. We have to have things for kids. It's not okay for a child to be bullied. That, that, that just isn't okay. And I don't want to say it was okay in the 80s, but it felt like that for me anyway. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And, and, and I believe society in general is paying more attention to those types of needs. Uh, you know, even with this crisis, right? The yeah. COVID-19, um, they talk a lot about mental health, uh, you know, and the resources available to people to make sure, because we're aware that being cooped up in your house uh, is not just a family vacation. It's tough. I mean, I had my kids for four days and I was like, there's days where I felt like a failure and days where it was awesome. And, and that's, that's stuff that we didn't talk about uh, years ago. My dad would never have talked about, you know, it's like, we're, we're living in unprecedented times, but it seems like we also have, uh, we, we're more mindful of those types of things, the, the unseen um, uh, repercussions of negative behaviors. Sure. Uh, you know, we, we, we have more resources available. And I think that's, I, I think those are great steps. Uh, you know, um, again, we always want to prevent Prevention is, is, you know, is always the best. But we're getting there. I, I, I'm hoping we're getting there. As a society, I'm hoping, you know, this this last month has been the great reset button on the world. Who knows how we come out of it on the other, other end? There's a real opportunity here, isn't there? There's a real opportunity for families to come together, for people to come together. There's a real opportunity here. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I, it's funny. I, I it, It's hard when you live in, a, you know, I'm a, I'm a former professional athlete. I love sport. I love competing. Again, I started uh, the serious competing at a very late age. My prior athletic experience was very, once it was casual, but I, you know, I played house league hockey. You know, I, I didn't have parents yelling in the stands. I didn't have uh, to go to power skating so that I could keep up with my teammates. Like I played hockey because it was fun. Yeah. I did that till the age of 16, 17, and then I got into football, still because it was fun, and then it got serious. I didn't have a serious bone in my body about sport till I was an adult. And uh, to tell you the truth, I mean, my kids aren't playing hockey right now. I kind of miss a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm spending more time with my kids than I ever have. Uh, yeah, but, you know, we can't play outside very much. We, they can't be with friends, but I don't miss I, – I don't miss – Driving to the rink an hour before so I can watch my kid for an hour to drive back uh, an hour later, a three-hour block of time for a practice or for a game. And I don't miss that because now we have dinner together. Yep. Not in the car. Yep. Uh, we play games together. My house is, is my, my like, we have dinner. I clean up my house. I have time to spend with my kids, put them to bed, and I come down from that, and I'm like, oh, wow. I don't really have much to do and maybe it's selfish, but it's not just how it impacts me. 
because I'm more rested. I'm less stressed. I'm not rushing. So I don't know. Like, I'm not anti-sport. No, 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 no. It's just a reset. That's all we're talking about here. I I sure am am enjoying some of the aspects of how this simplistic style of life has really hit us across the head and we have no choice but to hang on and accept it. I told someone, I said, it's like we're living in the 80s with internet because (laughs) stores weren't open till nine o'clock every night of the week. People weren't living in their cars. You know, the, the car has become an extension of the family home. You know, when I clean my car out, the amount of food I find in my home makes me realize the amount of meals kids eat in cars. And it's not just my car. I know people are doing it all over the place. Sure. I haven't eaten out in two weeks. I haven't brought my kids to a restaurant. I've cooked every meal for my kids that I've had. I Like, everything has been simple. And I thought, this is what the 80s were like. I send my kids out to play in front of the house. I make sure, obviously, they're not with friends, but... We, they played at the park the other day at the at the park some football in the field, and when I whistle, I come back for dinner. Hmm. They, they, you know they watch a little bit of TV. I have a pretty decent schedule for them so that they're not just on video games all day. I give them like an hour a day after they do homework and play and and read and and it's like I'm okay with this. Yep, yep. And you know what? If everyone's doing it. The biggest thing about minor sports, right? My biggest issue is this. If uh, Joe Blow buys a pair of $300 skates, Mary Blow feels like she has to buy a pair of $300 Keeping up with the Joneses. If if Jim Blow has his his, uh, son in uh, Joe Joe Star's hockey camp, well, that's the best hockey camp they show. And it's like boom, boom, boom. And it's just a domino effect of craziness. But that has two two impacts, though. That has two impacts. That impacts you already in the system, right? Because you feel you have to do it. But the unintended consequence is how many people are staying out of the sport because they're hearing these stories. They're seeing those stories. They don't want part of that. I just want my kid to be active. And how many kids are quitting the sport because of all that? I know. So here we are. Yes. There's not one person that's able to do anything extra then waking up, wash their hands, brush their teeth, eat, keep occupied all day, and then go to bed. Everyone's in the same boat, and you know what? It's pretty cool. Do you? Now, have- every I I, I, I I am obviously, and again, I know I'm seeing it from the perspective of someone that has a roof over my head, that has a job still, uh, that is able to feed my kids. So I know that it's, but. As far as from where I'm standing, it's a simpler time right now. Yeah, I, not easy for everyone, and I'm not I'm not taking away from the people that don't have jobs right now, don't have money. But I'm just saying, in terms of the life I was living a month ago, and many of my kids' peers were living a month ago to where it is now, it sure seems like a little simpler and 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 not so terrible. But Randy, I've done a dozen of these podcasts, and I would say in eleven of the podcasts that conversation we've had that maybe that's something that'll come out of this. A little simpler, a little slower, a little bit more back to basics. What's important, right? We've if, slowed if we down. Limit, if we can limit the amount of toilet paper people buy, can we limit the amount of times we throw a kid on ice? Can we limit the amount of fundraising uh, teams do to buy extra ice time, to buy tournaments? Their jerseys, and we got to wear the same helmets, and we got to, ah, crap. 
Again, you were kicking for the Dallas Cowboys six years after you started a sport. Yep. Right? And and I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. You did not have a strength and conditioning coach when you started. You didn't have a mental strength 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 coach. You didn't have all these your parents weren't sending you to spring football and fall football and, and midwinter football. You played football. You were good enough. You passed again. Reset here. Let's reset, right? Yep. Tell me a Henry Burris story. What's that? Tell me a Henry Burris story. Oh, I don't know if I have a Henry Burris story. You don't have a Henry Burris? You don't have a Smile and Hank story? I'm, I'm trying to think. That was like off the... It was just like totally random. Henry Burris story. Well, no, I just want to end because you're a great storyteller. And I'm, and you played with some characters and Smile and Hank. There has to be a Smile and Hank story in there somewhere. Well, I, Hank was... I mean, he's a funny guy. Like, he... Uh, I'm just trying to think if I could think of a of a good story because he threw did he throw you your only touchdown? Uh, he and uh, I got two. Two. Uh, he Sorry, threw me one against Saskatchewan and Drew Tate threw me my. That's other right. One. Drew threw you one as well. Okay, but the first one was Henry. Yeah, the first one was Henry, and it was always funny because George Costanza. Um, Pete Costanza. Uh, not, not George Costanza. Sorry. I got the names mixed up. George Cortez. Sorry. Okay. Okay. George Cortez was the offensive coordinator. And he used to always say, Chevy, you're the fifth option on the four receiver route. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Hank, I, I'll, yeah, that, that, that touchdown, I'll never forget. So, it was this play where basically it was a jumble on goal line. I was an extra tight end. My job was basically to block down on the guy below me, make it look like I'm giving him. Uh, like like double teaming him because we faked the run. Like you basically faked the running back over the pile. So it was like everyone was jamming in the middle. And then after like a, um, three Mississippi, I release out to catch a pass, right? And every time we did that, Hank fakes the handoff. Everyone makes the big pile. Hank would just bootleg out. And then it would always be smooth running for Hank into the end zone. Every time we practiced it, he always just ran it in. Even though, like, I'd be like, "Hey, pass me the ball," and George would always say the same thing, like, "Shit," he's like, "You're the fifth option on the four option route." And I was like, "Okay, coach," like, but you gotta run it to, to base. And so we got to that game. We played Saskatchewan. It was here at McMahon, and it was in the, uh, I think it was in the, in the West End Zone, and no, East End Zone. East it was zone. the East End Zone, yeah. Byron Walker, and. Uh, yeah, the play goes perfect. I, I, I block down, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, I release, and just as I turn, I see the freaking ball in my face. I'm like, what the? <laughs> and all I could think of was just put my hands up, and I caught it. And I realized I got a touchdown. And it was, like, so crazy surreal because he never threw me the ball. And that second, I didn't even – I like, he, he had heat on him. So I guess someone didn't bite on the play. And someone was right in his face. All he could do was get rid of the ball. And I was the only guy open because obviously no one's covering, <laughs> covering me. But it was like, so I just turned, like, had I not turned my head like a second earlier, I, I, I would have, I it would have hit me in the face. And so I, I caught that ball and it was, it was actually super funny. And Hank's like, yeah, you know, he's like, I didn't think he would catch it, but I had to get rid of it. So <laughs> So yeah, no, he, he's you know Henry was was uh, was a great ambassador for the stamps. He did, you know he 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 did a lot. He he he, he 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 resurrected the team in many ways. Not him alone, 
but he, he represented. represented. He put a face to the horse. He also took a lot of flack. Like, I mean, oh yeah, I, I don't think his career was storybook, and I think he took a lot of unnecessary flack uh, outside the locker room. Uh, you know, he, and if any one thing I could say about Henry is he really tried to be everything for anyone he met. He sure did. Uh, almost to a fault. Yep. Because you cannot, unfortunately, you cannot be uh, the, the top performer on the team and uh, being with everyone all the time they ask for you. And, and again, that's a, not a negative quality. That's a very uh, endearing quality in a human being, and, and, and that's the type of guy he is. But with the pressures of the job he had, uh, I think it was very hard to beat Henry Burris and the, the quarterback. What I do, what I will say is I love the way everything seemed to slow down for him when he went to Ottawa. And when he went to Ottawa, it seemed like everything clicked for Hank. And you could see that he had the team behind him. He had the coaches behind him. It was kind of like the storybook ending for him that I always thought yeah. he was really here in Calgary. But, I mean, he had a great – I mean, listen, 2008, we won the Grey Cup. And I mean that was on him, but in, in there was a, we had a lot of characters in Calgary, and, and no one would dispute that we had a lot of vocal characters. I mean we had great teammates, great leaders, but everyone had their bit of airspace. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone, you know, they, they, it was colorful. Our lock, we wore the black hat for a long time. Oh, you the know, end zone dances? Are you kidding me? And Nick oh. Lewis of the world, the Jermaine Copeland's, oh yeah, uh, the Brandon Browners. We had we had a very colorful group of individuals. The Scott Coes, like there was a lot of people that took up a lot of room, and Hank was kind of it, it was his locker room, it was his, his offense, but I don't know if it was necessarily his team. No, but this I, this is Bo's team. This has been Bo Levi Mitchell's team. This has always been Bo Levi Mitchell's team. But you're absolutely right. When, when Hank I, when was Henry here, went to, yeah, when Henry went to Ottawa, yeah. I could see it. I could see that that was his team. Yeah. That, that it was kind of like when Ricky Ray won the Grey Cup against Calgary in uh, 2000. Was it 16? Yeah. In Toronto. And yeah. All, in Toronto. And they were all chanting his name. And, and they did the same thing with Hank when he beat the Stamps. You could tell it was his team. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and I like that for him because you know what? When you're the quarterback, you take a lot of unnecessary flack. You get a lot of the credit when things are good. But, you know, football is that ultimate team game. Hank, and, Hank heard everything. Hank heard everything. He, oh, yeah. He was yeah. very aware of what was being written. I mean, listen, the, the, the Hank Frank thing was created by one of his own teammates. He's one of my best friends in football, Raheem Abdullah, said it as a joke one day in the locker room. And, you know, and it was kind of alluding to, you know, what a lot of people gave him flack for. Sometimes he'd be lights out and every yeah. once in a while he had a game yeah. where he throw a bunch of picks and people get, and then, you know, I think Raheem said, well, it depends who shows up, Hank or Frank. And that took, took you know, it, 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 it caught fire and, and the guys in the media love to use that, right? Like, I mean, uh, uh, it was said by a teammate, but it kept getting resurrected and it was always there, right? And anytime Henry had a bad game, you'd see it. It, it, someone would write that as a headline, and then it would go away for a bit. And then, it, and like you said, he heard it all. Yeah, he, he did. heard it all, and 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 that's the hard hard thing too. You know, another quarterback that was like that, and I think he settled down was they said you know early in his career, Darian Durant was like that. Yep. Um, you know, 
And I came to this discovery after I finished playing football, you know, and, and I'm still still working toward it. But you spend your whole career trying to prove people wrong. I think a lot of athletes do. Most times there's someone that told you you can't make it. Most times there's someone that told you you weren't good enough. You spend your whole time proving people wrong. Towards the end of your career when you play as long as I did and guys like Hank did, you start looking people telling you you can't do it because that becomes your motivator yep and it becomes you, you almost do it to the detriment of all the people that have been in your corner your whole life all the people that say we like you the way you are we we appreciate you as a human being we but that's not good enough for someone who has been fueled by um the negativity of others sure it's not good enough to 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 look at uh to, to hear your mom and dad say you know you know what you got a good game it's not good enough to look at your wife and say, you know what, I'm still here. You know, it's, you look for the people, you look for the negative so you can prove them wrong. And it becomes a really um, almost like an, a, an addictive um, uh, response to keep you going, right? And, I, I mean, I felt it too to the point where I told myself, I said, when my football was, career was done, I mean, listen, I, I was 30, I think it was 33 or 34 when Huff, God gave me my first pay cut and he kind of joked. He said, how long do you think you're going to play football anyway, chef? Play until I'm 40. And he laughed. We were across the table. It was in April doing negotiating. He laughed at me and I thought, I'm going to prove this guy wrong. And, you know, when I played those last three games in Saskatchewan, I was 40 years old. Mm-hmm. One of the main driving factors was I wanted to prove that man wrong. How crazy that is that that mattered me as a human being i had kids i had a full-time job i had all this stuff i had to prove someone wrong that told me uh i couldn't do it you know and i still think i could do it as crazy as it sounds i still think oh, I, I know do it, but i had to prove know. this man wrong and i think no uh, I know athletes you think you were, yeah. were fueled on that and I, and I believe that that's what hits athletes so hard is when they don't have an opportunity to prove anyone wrong anymore because they just don't have an opportunity when the game ends, whether it's an injury, when the game ends, when you're set told, we don't want you and nobody gives you that chance anymore. It's a tough, tough go. And, and so I said, you know what? I got to start listening to the voices of the people that have always been there for me, that I've always believed in me uh, because those are the voices that are important. And it's, but it's, it's, it's a tough transition. And, and uh, you know, uh, again, if we go back to Hank, I'm really glad through his evolution that he retired on his own terms. He's like, I don't have to prove anyone anything anymore. I'm Henry Burris. I did all this. And it seems like he came to this moment where it's like, yep, and then dropped the mic and left. Yep. That's what he did. That's what he did. Yep. Um, before we drop the mic and left, uh, leave, I've got one more question for you. I ask it to everybody, all of the guests. No parameters. I am just going to ask you the question. You give me the answer. Give me, because this is all going to end at some point, and we're all going to get back to normal, but we want to give people something to look forward to, something to think about, something to maybe put on a little bit of a list. Give me Randy Chevrolet's hidden Calgary gem. Give me a hidden Calgary gem. Are we talking about like a place I'm telling you there's no parameters. You oh. set the parameters. You set the parameters. Oh. Hidden Calgary Gym. Yep. Uh, gosh, does it have to be hidden? 
No, it doesn't have to be hidden per se. You can make up the parameters. Let me think. This is a good question. I mean, it's you can't just you, – you, this is life-changing, life-altering life stuff here. I don't think it's life-altering, but it's that one thing that you go to, you enjoy, that puts a smile on your face, that isn't, you know, a chain or isn't a business or isn't – whatever it is and is. You know, the parameters are yours, sir. No parameters. A hidden Calgary gem. Um, Shouldice Park. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, why well, I believe this. So the week before everything was in lockdown, the Friday before the schools were out and stuff, I had my kids and I chose not to send my kids to school. They had a late night before. That night we got an email that hockey was canceled and lacrosse was canceled. And I thought, yeah, school's going to be canceled. There was a, there was a, Snowstorm. So I had my kids that weekend, and then all the news started coming out the Saturday and Sunday how everything was going to hell. We didn't know what was going on, right? Yep. Well, that Sunday before schools were closed, every it was minus twenty. It was, actually it was Monday. It was minus twenty five degrees, and I've been to Shoalice Park before. Uh, they have a beautiful playground, the Jumpstart play, Playground. It's right by the Shoalice Pool. It's unbelievable. And I was minus 25, I believe, and there was no one there. And I took my kids there. I said, you know what? We're going to be stuck in the house, but we're going to play outside. Went to co-op, bought a whole bunch of hot dogs, bought some drinks, bought some snacks, brought my charcoal, brought my lighter. We went to Shouldice Park, there's barbecue there. I'm the only crazy guy with my kids playing in the playground uh, with, a, with a full-on barbecue hot dog roast. My kids brought their radio. We were listening to music. And it was probably one of the coolest days ever. And we played for three hours in minus <laughs> 25. Just us. No one was there. Roasting wieners, playing football, climbing, listening to music. And uh, it was a pretty cool day. I know I'll remember it. I hope my kids do. I always try to, I always try to do things for them. And you think, you know, especially I'm a single dad now, you think uh, you're just you're just keeping them alive sometimes and you hope that you're giving them good, good experiences. But, uh, I hope, I hope that they remember that one. Cause it was a, it was a, that was a, that was a, that was a win as a dad that day. I felt like uh, I did something that these guys should remember. So it was fun. And it was because of that part. So you, uh, now become the new clubhouse leader. So you jumped to the top of the leaderboard with that answer. That is the correct answer, by the way. So congratulations. You're now our reigning champion. Um, Please. Thank you, sir. This is the longest one I've done so far, although that was probably the expectation going in. We covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I have so much admiration for you. I have so much appreciation for you. Thank you for doing what you're doing for all of us right now as a member of the Calgary Fire Department. Uh, but thank you for being you, Randy Chevrier. You are a one in a million, man. Uh, I love you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Rob, thank you for being my friend. Chevy. Ah, uh, I know. I told you it's a long one. You, you, this may, you might have, you know, I don't know why. To me, two-hour podcast with a guest like this, let's do it. Like this was awesome. Are you kidding? This was awesome. Randy Chevrier is the best. Uh, loved all the conversations. The Johnny Free Crap stories are great. Uh, the, the the CFL stories are great. The Henry Burris stories are great. But at the end of the day, it's what this man is all about. He retires as a football player. He gets in, takes his training, becomes a firefighter. And when he's not protecting us, he's in our schools helping our kids and bullying. 
I don't think there's a finer human being that I can come up with than one Randy Chevrier. Hope you enjoyed this. If you did, please share it. Please let your friends friends and family know. Uh, the whole intention is to have conversations like this with Calgarians in sport and tell a few stories. Um, we've had some great guests. Uh, I think back to Katrina LeMay Doan, George Canyon, Peter Marr um, as well. Uh, oh, Erica Weeb was fantastic. Uh, I'm missing some, so rather than me miss some, go back and take a look uh, and, and, and enjoy them. Uh, thanks to Randy Chevrier. Thanks to you for joining us and, and downloading Spotify or Apple or off the Sport Calgary website. This has been an original Six Feet Conversation podcast for Sport Calgary. Sports Calgary.